So your background is in computer science, is that correct? I have a background in philosophy and a background in computer science and engineering. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, most of my professional life has been around technology and management. Uh, and only very recently, I am uh, dedicated exclusively to, to philosophy. Mm. So what, what was the turning point between bringing you over from computer science over to the realms of, of this kind of philosophy? I think I was born a philosopher because I've always uh, lived the life of a philosopher asking myself the big questions, especially from the time I was 12 years old, uh, like you, when, I'm, when my father died, all these philosophical questions uh, started coming up. But it was a repressed side of me because when I was younger, I was I was more interested in palpable things, you know, things that I could achieve and, and show working and accomplish. So science and technology um, were, were bigger for me. I went to university to a computer engineering school. I had just turned 17, so it, it was very early. By the time of, I, I was 22, I was a graduate and continued down that path. Um, got my first PhD when I was 26. Congratulations. So I was in, in computer engineering. Congratulations. Oh, thank you. It's been a long time ago, <laughs> 2001. Um, and uh, at some point, um, I, was, I, I had already been working with artificial intelligence for a while. And, and that kind of work uh, puts you very much in contact with the questions of, you know, what is mind? What is consciousness? I'm here designing an intelligent computer that I know is intelligent because I can objectively measure that as far as the ability of that computer to solve the problems I've designed it to solve. But uh, what reason do I have, I asked myself, to think that this artificial intelligence I have created is in any way accompanied by experience? Because all, all of those intelligent calculations could be happening entirely in the dark, just like I assume that my home thermostat uh, flips between on and off states uh, totally in the dark. There is nothing it is like to be my home thermostat. And I thought, well, there's nothing it's like to be this computer I've just designed. Uh, and I started looking for, uh, for uh, reasons to, to believe that at some point consciousness could emerge in an intelligent computer. I started looking for different ways of processing data that would give me some reason to think that, okay, now it's also conscious. conscious. Uh, but there was never such a reason. I mean, it doesn't matter in whatever sophisticated, complex way you manipulate data uh, uh, underlying that complexity is still just data manipulation. And if you didn't have reason to think that it was conscious in the beginning, you don't have reason to think it's consciousness after you make it more complex. To think otherwise is to believe that there is some magical step that happens at some point without any reason for it. I mean, uh, a computer is basically a collection of uh, microscopic switches, uh, which are to electricity, like uh, your bathroom tap is to water. It can open and close, let electricity mm. flow or not flow, just like your tap lets mm. water flow or not flow. Yeah, and the so reason it's we a binary system. It's a binary system. And the only reason we use electricity instead of taps and water is that uh, with electricity can, electricity and microswitches, we can make everything very small and economically attractive. With taps, pipes and water, you would require something the size of a country uh, to build a computer. But in essence, you're doing exactly the same thing and you can solve exactly the same problems. So my realization was that, uh, no, it doesn't matter that I add a million new 
taps and pipes and extra water to the system, it's still just pipes, taps and water. I have no reason to think that a million pipes are conscious if 10 pipes are not. Um, and that's what led me then to the switch to philosophy, because I realized at that point in my late 20s that um, obviously some of my starting unexamined assumptions were wrong because they were leading me to an internal contradiction in the way I was thinking about things. And once you start digging, digging up your assumptions, the, the things that you inherit from culture, from your parents, from your doctor, from your teachers, without even realizing it, once you start um, uh, 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 digging into those and examining them critically, then you realize that, hey, there's so much we get wrong. And I reviewed my entire worldview, and that's, that's when my uh, serious philosophical trajectory, or at least my public philosophical trajectory, mm. started. Mm. It all, every conversation I have always seems to come down to the same premise, and that is that everybody is basing their worldview on some kind of assumption, some kind of unproven assumption, mainly that um, consciousness is, is material. That's the main one that the majority of people in the materialistic worldview kind of take for granted but don't realise or don't really accept that it's an assumption, um, which is why I became interested because you have all these different experiences which seem to contradict that that assumption and show it to be an assumption um, I, I I don't mind that there are assumptions um, if you make no assumptions or at least no inference uh, you end up as a solipsist you think that all reality is your private dream and nobody else is really conscious they are just images in your mind that you're conjuring up uh, and that is untenable for a number of reasons. So at some point, we have to make certain inferences. We have to make assumptions that we can't prove. Not everything can be proven. A whole lot of very important things cannot be proven. But we can make best guesses. And there are guesses that are demonstrably worse than other guesses. I cannot disprove that the flying spaghetti monster exists. Uh, but uh, it's not a good guess. I don't need that kind of complexity to make sense of things. For exactly the same reason, I don't think we need to guess that there is such an accessible entity called matter fundamentally outside and independent of consciousness, given that all we know to actually exist from direct acquaintance is consciousness. I, I, I grant that there is consciousness going on outside my individual mind, my personal self, uh, but it's also consciousness. It's not matter fundamentally outside and independent of consciousness. Uh, I, I cannot disprove it, but it's not needed for the same reason that the flying spaghetti monster is not needed. Um, you said that materialists make the assumption that there is matter. I don't think that's an assumption. I think that's, that's a, a conclusion, an inference based on other things that are indeed assumptions, but are not recognized as such. For instance, um, uh, we all know that uh, we seem to inhabit the same external world, separate from ourselves. Um, and we all know that we can't change that world by merely wishing or imagining in it, in it uh, to be different. And the materialist then assumes that the only way to make sense of these two things I've just said is to postulate matter outside and independent of consciousness. But it's not. You do have to postulate something outside your personal, individual consciousness, but you don't need to postulate something fundamentally distinct and independent of consciousness as an ontological class. Um, and because 
this this assumption goes unexamined, then they extract the conclusion that uh, consciousness is material. Um, but that, that that's not itself an assumption, it's a conclusion, but it arises from an ex unexamined assumptions, I think. Hmm. What do you think, being from a computer science background, of the analogy between human mind and software on a, on a computer? Because between the brain and a computer system, you, you have a very similar kind of binary system on the computer you have on-off, on the brain you have either the action potential or not so, which kind of also operates as an on-off switch. So people draw that, well, since we know that a computer, which is essentially a, a bunch of metal and silicon with an electric charge passed through it, um, I'm sure I'm very much simplifying that, but essentially, and the brain is essentially some gooey cells, neurons with an electric charge passed through it. If the computer can generate from that only software that we can interact with, then surely the <laughs> brain can also... People who say this have no understanding of how computers work or what software is. There is no such a thing as software. What we call software is, is a handy abstraction that allows us to sort of carve out different types of work so we can build computers more efficiently. What we call software is just a certain pattern of state transitions in hardware. But those state transitions are hardware. There isn't such an entity called software that goes on top or is somehow abstracted or created by a hardware. All there is are microswitches that open or close. And that pattern of opening and closing, which is hardware, can be defined. And we can define that according to a sort of discipline of human knowledge that we've labeled software. But all you're doing is you are orchestrating the behavior of the hardware. At the end of the day, uh, there is only hardware as an existing entity. Software is just a conceptual abstraction we make, and it's handy. It's a very handy abstraction. It allows us to train some people in software and train other people in hardware. But at the end of the day, there is only hardware. Software is just an abstraction for the patterns of state transitions in hardware. So in, in other words, if you use that as, a, as a, an analogy for what's happening to us, then you have to conclude that consciousness is just molecules in your brain. In other words, it doesn't really exist. There is only your brain going on. And of course, that conclusion is untenable because my inner life, the way I experience it from a first-person perspective, doesn't look at all like a, 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 a networks of firing neurons. Uh, firing neurons are what my inner life looks like from an outside perspective. But my inner life, as it's felt uh, from a first-person perspective, has nothing to do with firing neurons. So you have to say that my inner life, as I experience it, doesn't really exist because all there really is is the hardware or the firing neurons. I think that's untenable. I mean, it's obviously untenable, but I'm, I'm being more conservative in the way I answer this because um, uh, uh, incredibly, our culture has come to admit as plausible the possibility that consciousness doesn't really exist, which is ridiculous. It's the strangest thing that has ever happened in human thought, as Galen Strawson once said. That's but the yeah, Daniel that's Dennett the... opinion, isn't it? Or it was at one point, the Daniel Dennett opinion that consciousness is a... Yeah, yeah, Daniel Dennett, happens. he doesn't have a complete ontology. He's, he's a provocateur, um, a nonsensical provocateur, uh, a very well-articulated uh, nonsensical provocateur. Uh, what he says, uh, if you press him, he would say, uh, what I claim, he would say, is that uh, consciousness is not what you think it is. 
but if but if he just giving a talk or writing a paper, he would say consciousness is an illusion. In other words, it doesn't really exist because that's how most people understand that. Um, and if not the way it should be understood, if all he's saying is that consciousness exists, but it's not what you think it is, then his work is utterly irrelevant uh, because it doesn't address the so-called uh, hard problem of consciousness at all. So the relevance of his work rides on an outright absurdity. And if you press him on that, he will say, well, of course, that's not what I really mean. Yeah, but then his work has no relevance. You cannot have the cake and eat it too. I think um, uh, Daniel Dennett is probably one of the most noxious, toxic figures in, in philosophy today. You mentioned the hard problem, which is essentially... Um it's always brought up as, as how, but I always say it's best to start with if. But how does um, physical matter give rise to this experience known as consciousness? And the, the way I think that you described it very well that I was watching um, the interview you did with T. Jump, someone who I've interviewed as well, so I keep up to date with his stuff. Um, and you, you've made a very good analogy to, well, how many valves are you going to add onto a system of, of pipes and taps? as you mentioned here as well, before it becomes conscious. Can you ever conceive of having, you know, hundreds of millions of billions of taps? Could you imagine them at any point displaying something you'd call consciousness? And through a commonsensical point of view, I, I would outright say no, because it's just taps and water. Um, I, I believe T-Jump said yes to that, that answer. I mean, I, I don't agree with, but... Um, Essentially, it's the same thing with, with neurons, which is just matter. So if you put all these taps in a certain orientation and have enough of them, then surely you could say that that could produce consciousness if you also say that the brain, which is matter, a lot of matter organised in a certain way, can produce consciousness. Each starts with unconscious bases, so how can that develop into consciousness? That's essentially the hard problem, isn't it? Yeah, it, I mean, the whole thing is, is an artifact of bad thinking, which unfortunately has acquired a level of plausibility in our very sick culture. Um, look, to say that um, 10 taps and a few pipes are not conscious, but then proceed and say, if I add enough taps and pipes, somehow it will become conscious, it's an appeal to magic. Um, and this appeal to magic now has a respectable sounding name. We call it strong emergence. Strong emergence is completely incoherent. All you're trying to do is you face a, a contradiction in your system of thought, but you cannot admit that your whole system of thought rests on nonsense, on bullshit. So what you do is you try to bury that contradiction under unfathomable complexity as, so as to deceive yourself that somewhere in that unfathomable complexity, there is a solution for the problem you need to solve if your system of thought is to hold any water. Um, so this is a, a psychological self-defense mechanism and a rather um, peculiar, uh, ironic one, because it is so ridiculous. Um, um, I don't remember quite the person you're referring to right now, but. Anybody who says, well, if I add enough switches, if I add enough taps, then it's plausible that consciousness suddenly pops. It, 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 he's appealing to magic. This is, th there is no reason involved here. This is not a reasonable line of thought. This is not a rigorous or plausible line of thought. It's an appeal to blunt magic. 
which I cannot endorse. And why is it so difficult then to reconcile materialism with consciousness? It's because of the way we, we structured it. It's the way we define matter. Look, when science began four or five hundred years ago, all scientists began from perception, the things they could see, hear, touch, smell in the world out there. And perception is mental. It has qualities, color, melody, flavor. These are qualities. These are uh, uh, experiential states. And then at some point, scientists realize that it's very handy to describe this mental world of perceptions with uh, mathematical uh, uh, quantities and equations to relate these quantities to one another. So uh, our theoretical apparatus started off as a way to describe the patterns and regularities of perception. So we could predict how nature, as presented to us mentally on the screen of perception, would behave next and create technology. That was very successful. But at some point, bizarrely, we, th we said, no, no, wait a moment. What actually exists, what is fundamental and prior, is the descriptions. That's what actually exists. The thing that is described in the first place is secondary. In other words, we replaced the territory with the map. We started from the territory. We realized that building a map is very handy, can allow us to predict where we are going to end up if we walk this way or that way. But at some point we said, no, no, the map is prior. The map is where it all starts. It's the one thing that really exists. And the territory described by the map, that is secondary. It's an epiphenomenon from the brain. I mean, this is preposterous. It's ridiculous. Now we say that matter, which is exhaustively defined in terms of numbers, mass, charge, momentum, frequency, amplitude, no qualities at all. We say that that is what really exists out there. So we defined it as something that by construction has nothing to do with experience. That's how we've defined matter. And then we've tried to uh, reconstruct experience from that matter, which is defined as having nothing to do with experience. Can that succeed? Of course not, by construction. This is the hard problem of consciousness. We define this thing matter that by construction doesn't have any relationship whatever with consciousness. And now we try to reduce consciousness to it. It will never work. It's, it's, it's an artifact of bad thinking. That's all there is to it. And this kind of leads into the idea of idealism. I read um, an article you, you wrote up, I think it was quite a while ago, in the in a journal of consciousness. I can't remember the exact title of it. Um, but you gave a, a brief description of, of idealism. As a, as a non-philosopher, I'm not 100% up to scratch with it. So if you could kind of give us a brief explanation of what it is and yeah. what it intends to do. So I, I endorse uh, a, a metaphysics called analytic idealism, which combines aspects of subjective idealism and objective idealism. The technical details don't matter. What it says is the following. I acknowledge that there is a world out there within which we all live and which we cannot change by a mere act of volition. I acknowledge that world exists. What I do not acknowledge is that that world is fundamentally independent uh, and outside consciousness as, a, as an ontological class. In other words, what I'm saying is that the world out there exists, but it is also mental. It is constituted by experiential states, not my experiential states, not my thoughts, not my emotions. Transpersonal experiential states instead uh, uh, the world 
is a, a ocean of transpersonal experiential states within which we live. And those transpersonal experiential states present themselves to us in the form we call perception. In other words, as the colors and flavors and, and melodies that, uh, that we experience when observing the world. So what we call physicality, physical things, uh, is merely the way, well, not merely, it is the way these transpersonal experiential states present themselves to us, uh, given how our experiential apparatus, our perceptual apparatus has evolved in the course of evolution. What we see on the screen of perception, which we call the physical world, is not what is really out there in and of itself. It's how that thing presents itself to us. In other words, the physical world, and this is the, the title of an essay I published on Scientific American a short while ago, um, uh, the screen of perception is not a, a transparent window into the world as it is in itself. It is rather like a dashboard of dials. Uh, the screen of perception presents us relevant information about what is out there. But it isn't what is out there in the same way that dials are not what is out there. They just present relevant information about what is out there. So physicality is a dashboard of dials that convey us important things, important information about the, the transpersonal experiential states that are out there. So we should take these dials seriously for the same reason that you should take the speedometer in your car seriously, but we shouldn't take it literally in the sense that a needle moving in your dashboard isn't speed. It isn't your car moving in a road. It's just a way to convey relevant information about it. So idealism would say everything is ultimately mental, is ultimately in consciousness, not your consciousness or my consciousness alone, but in consciousness as an ontological class. Hmm. Could you just briefly describe, uh, define what you mean by transpersonal experience? Transpersonal means that means that these are experiences that are outside every single person or every single living individual. Um, uh, some people are tempted to say, well, these are disembodied experiences. They aren't disembodied in the sense that the inanimate universe is also a physical entity insofar as it presents itself to us on the screen of perception. So what I'm saying is that uh, what is out there is experiential in nature, but it's not part of your mind or my mind or my cat's mind. It is really out there. Hmm. My current idea on how kind of we are is I, I subscribe to the idea currently, not that it can't change, as many people believe, that um, our brains are, <coughs> are, of course, central to the to the experience. But instead of on a causal level, it, it kind of works as a as a filter or a, a receiver or a, a manipulator of of a consciousness that we don't know and that it seems kind of in line of what with your with what you're saying is in experience pure experience as or the re the reality as it is comes through our brain which is then shown to us in a way that the brain has um translated it to us but it's I, not as it is literally as you say I think the, the filter theory or the reduction valve theory, as Aldous Huxley put it originally, and I think the idea comes from, from C.D. Broad, actually, in the late 19th century. I don't remember. I think it is a useful metaphor 
if you're coming from a, from a materialist or a dualist background and you're used to thinking in certain ways, then that metaphor helps you take a step forward to look at the brain as a kind of reduction valve or filter of transpersonal consciousness. It's a useful metaphor, but I don't think it is ultimately true because it's a dualist metaphor. Uh, you see the brain as the valve and consciousness as something else, as that which is then reduced or filtered by the brain. Like uh, a coffee filter filters coffee, but the coffee filter is not made of coffee. No. In other words, you need the filter, you need the coffee, you need mind and yeah. you need the brain. So and dualism is, is essentially saying there's matter and then there's consciousness. Yes. Yes, and I don't think that's what's going on. I don't think dualism, uh, I cannot disprove dualism for the same reason that I can't disprove the flying mm -hmm. spaghetti monster, but I don't think it's necessary. I think uh, it, it's a useful metaphor, but ultimately, if I am asked to talk more rig rigorously and more literally about what I think is going on, I would say this. The brain is a image of a certain localization or dissociative process in transpersonal consciousness. It is what that process in transpersonal consciousness looks like from a perspective. And that's why the brain states correlate so well with inner experience, because brain states are what those inner experiences look like from an outside perspective. Every phenomenon in nature has an image, otherwise we wouldn't be able to observe it. It has an extrinsic appearance. It has an inner nature and an extrinsic appearance. For instance, atmospheric electric discharge has a certain inner nature that we can describe according to Maxwell's equations. But it also has an appearance. When we look at it from the outside, atmospheric electric dis discharge looks like lightning. Uh, combustion has an intrinsic nature. Uh, it's the certain ionization processes that lead to the formation of plasma. That's from the inside. From the outside, it looks like flames. Every process in nature has an image. Uh, um, a whirlpool in water is a natural process, uh, a certain pattern of movement of water. But from the outside, it looks like an image, a whirlpool. So uh, a dissociative process in transpersonal consciousness that leads to the appearance of separate individual awareness, a separate individual mind, that localization or dissociative process should also have an image, just like the whirlpool. And my contention is it looks like uh, a living body. It, it, biology is what it looks like. What we call biology is what this dissociative process in transpersonal consciousness looks like. And it also is what gives rise to our impression that uh, we are minds separate from the rest. We are individuals separate from everything else that's going on. Just like uh, uh, in a psychiatric patient with uh, dissociative identity disorder, we also claim that there are separate uh, centers of consciousness within him or her. The illusion is very compelling. We know now it's, uh, that, that condition really exists since the advent of neuroimaging. The illusion is very compelling, but we know that at the end of the day, there is only that person. There aren't multiple alters in there. It's just an impression, an illusion. I would say the same thing is going on right now. You and I are alters of uh, universal consciousness. And this dissociative process that leads to the formation of alters look like your and my body. And yet all there is going on here are mental processes. You see, um, you can point at a whirlpool and say there is a whirlpool. We can even delineate the boundaries of the whirlpool. You can say the whirlpool starts here and ends there. Yet there is nothing to it 
but the river or the lake in which it's happening. You can't take the whirlpool out of the river and say, here's the whirlpool, there's the river. The whirlpool is just a pattern of behavior, behavior of water. There is only water. There's nothing more to it other than water. For exactly the same reason, I would say you and I, our bodies are just consciousness. They are patterns of behavior in consciousness. We can't lift ourselves out of consciousness like the materialists uh, try to do. For the same reason that you can't lift a whirlpool out of water. And yet I can point at you and say, there you are. I can delineate the boundaries of your body just like I can delineate the boundaries of a whirlpool. So I think this is the most reasonable, empirically adequate, conceptually clear and, and parsimonious option for making sense of reality. Not materialism, definitely not. Materialism is probably the worst option on the table right now. Hmm. It sounds a lot like um, the ideas of Rupert Spira, if you know Rupert Spira. I know him. He's a friend. Uh, we talk. Uh, it's, yeah, it's very consistent with that. There is a minor difference in detail if you dig deep enough into this rabbit hole, but it's, it's relevant for the discussion we are having now. Yes, it's very consistent with that. Even though Rupert comes at it from a completely different angle, he comes at it from the angle of meditation, introspection, self-inquiry, a subjective angle. And I come at it from the angle of you know, logical reasoning, empirical evidence, a completely different mm -hmm. angle. And yet we arrive at the same place. Mm. Which is certainly strong evidence that something, there is something to it. It's at Although, least indicative of that, yeah. It is, yes. Although many people, unfortunately, would seem to deny it as wishful thinking or woo-woo, which is a term I absolutely despise. <laughs> Especially when you start getting related to um, Deepak Chopra in a condescending way, which I, I don't know about Deepak Chopra. He might be a brilliant scientist, but... I have known Deepak for over six years now. Um, before that, I didn't know him, so I can't tell about who he was before or what he did before. I never dug deep into that. But the person I know today is a, is a highly intelligent person, uh, motivated by very legitimate uh, motivations to do what he does. He genuinely wants to help people. He invests his money. And he, I, I don't think he will ever tell that publicly, but he invests this money in ways that if everybody knew, people would have a very different uh, idea uh, of Deepak Chopra, I think. He's extraordinarily elaborate, extremely intelligent, um, does a lot of, he's close to a lot of scientific work, a lot of, of, of which he funds. Uh, he surrounds himself with uh, very smart, capable people. So uh, I, I have very I have a whole lot of positive things uh, to say uh, about Deepak, but I do uh, know, of course, I'm not uh, naive. I do know that uh, uh, in the culture at large, uh, he is seen as a, as a, a representative of a new age woo woo. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and, and I worst. don't know the reasons for that. I I I, no. I, I will uh, um, reserve judgment about that. But the person I have known for over six years is not that at all. Mm. And I, th I think it's a shame because, you know, he's, he's clearly, I've seen snippets of, of his work, but only snippets. And he do, he seems to know what he's talking about, but people seem to attack him over his, his ideas of um, quantum physics. And, and, I mean, you always hear that he's a, he's this con man who's just after money and peddling woo-woo. That's the, I, I hate that term, but that's that's what you hear. Why do you think that is? Do you think it's just 
just talk to them. <laughs> I don't know how our how our our culture works at a sociologic sociological mm -hmm. level. I mean, um, uh, he wrote a book with uh, Leonard Mlodinov, one of the best known physicists uh, today, who who was a uh, collaborator of uh, Stephen Hawking. Um, um, Leonard has been to several events organized by DPAC, and I know because I was there as well, and Leonard, Leonard was there across <laughs> in a chair in front of me. Um, so uh, Michael Shermer is a frequent guest in DPAC Chopra's uh, events. So yeah, th those people who are usually referred to as the ones who put DPAC down, they seem to have enough respect for DPAC to constantly interact with him and to do work with him, to talk to him, to write books with him. So yeah, um, I, I don't know, but I don't know where this comes from. Um, maybe from the past and maybe there are legitimate reasons for this from the past. Uh, which I haven't dug into and have no interest in digging into right now. Not because it's an interesting, but because I have other things to do than, than to revise uh, history. I'm happy enough that the person I know today is who I think he is. And he is a tremendously positive uh, force uh, in the world today. In almost every respect, I have never heard him tell me anything that is nonsensical, much to the contrary. So mm. um, I'm quite positive about him, yeah. I think it's more a side effect of being batting heads with the likes of Richard Dawkins and all the loud people yeah, in opposition know, and his, their followers, you know. One thing that uh, people say a lot about him is uh, the accusation that he speaks in terms of word salad. Uh, there <laughs> yes. is even an online bot, uh, I forgot the name, but they're supposed to put words together in a random way, uh, scientific sounding words that are put together in a random way, and they say this is what Deepak Chopra says. There are two possibilities here. No? One is that indeed he's saying word salad. The other possibility is that his critics don't actually understand what, what he's saying. saying. They, mm -hmm. they don't have the intuitive grasp to say what Deepak Chopra is trying to hint at. Um, and therefore, to them, it's word salad. But that's because of their own cognitive limitations, not because of Deepak Chopra. And I would dare a guess that a lot of these critics who say, well, Deepak Chopra won't spit out word salad. Actually, it's their stupidity <laughs> that prevents them from understanding what he's trying to hint at. Admittedly, he's not rigorous in his use of words. That's not his territory. He's not interested in being rigorous. He's trying to reach the, the normal person on the street. He's trying to appeal to the normal person's intuitions in a colloquial way. He, he's not articulating his words as if he were writing an analytic philosophy paper for a technical journal. So yes, his words are not rigorous, but you have to grant him the flexibility that you grant to every other person in colloquial conversation. You have to see past the specific words and try to grasp what he means. Because at the end of the day, that's what he meant. That, that's what matters. What is he trying to say? But his critics uh, stop at the words because their agenda is to criticize him. So they stop at the words and the words are not rigorously put together. They are appealing to intuition, not to unambiguous uh, 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 denotations. And these people say, well, there is no unambiguous denotation here. So it's word salad. Yeah, that's too bad. Mm. Mm. They are missing out. Understanding on their part, yeah. I never thought we'd get in on talking about Deepak Chopra, I must say, <laughs> but never mind. Let's, let's go on to, to the idea of death, because that's my main area of interest and kind of what your opinion is on, on what our experience, if there is such experience, will happen after death 
and I'd like to, you know, your opinion on, on phenomena like near-death experiences, internal lucidity, and these very other experiences that go along with it, after-death communications, and the sigh, and all that sort of thing, how that kind of works into your idea of, of idealism. I think uh, we are dissociative processes in a transpersonal consciousness, which is the ground level of reality. It's what there is. And as such, things happen within it, including birth and death. These are processes that happen within consciousness. Um, so if our living bodies are the image, the extrinsic appearance or the representation of a dissociative process in transpersonal consciousness, what is death? The end of the body. It's the end of the dissociation. It's the reintegration of your contents of consciousness into a broader uh, 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 mental context. You can, you can make an analogy with waking up from a dream. Uh, when you are in a dream, you are dissociated from the parts of your own mind that conjure up the rest of the dream other than your dream avatar. So if during the dream you think you are a little avatar walking down a street with trees and cars and buildings, you are dissociated from that part of your own mind that is conjuring up the trees, the cars, uh, uh, the, the buildings, everything around you because you think of yourself as separate from them. So there is a dissociation going on there and there is an identification with a subset of your own mind. You think you are the dream avatar. In fact, you are the whole dream. When you wake up, that becomes very clear. You go, oh, 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 I was the whole dream. I know that now. And your avatar is toast. Your avatar is dead, um, never to be resurrected. Um, but you don't mourn the death of your avatar because you realized you weren't it uh, at any point. You were the thing that was dreaming up the whole shebang all along. And you were just, you were just dissociated during the dream. So when you wake up, you, you, your dissociation ends and you realize what was actually going on. So I think insofar as the body is the image of a dissociative process, death is the, is the image of the end of that dissociation, mm. is the waking up. So um, what do you think is our experience once we're reintegrated with that trend? I have no idea. <laughs> no, I have it's no gone idea. Beyond, beyond speculation, isn't it? Yeah, I don't think it's, mm. it's a perceptual experience to begin with, because I think perception is something that arises with the dissociation. Once a dissociative boundary forms, you only have access to what is beyond that boundary and on the, on the other side of it in the form of perception. So I cannot experience your thoughts and emotions directly right now, but I can see you, which is what your thoughts and emotions impinge on my dissociative boundary. It's the representation mm -hmm. of your mm -hmm. inner life across a dissociative boundary. When that dissociative boundary ends, I think perception is gone. Uh, you're not going to see the world physically anymore, I think. And I don't even think you exist in the form of an individual agency, at, at least not in the form of the individual agency you experience right now. You think of yourself as an individual, separate from the rest. I think at least to some extent um, that thought will go down the drain. You will still remember it. You will still remember what it was like to be you, um, uh, but I don't think you, you will identify with it or operate like a, a, a individual agency anymore. So in, in a sense, I don't think Darren or Bernardo, Bernardo will, will, quote, survive death. But I don't think there is 
any reason at all to be anxious about that, at least not any more reason to be anxious about that, then there is reason to be anxious about the death of your dream avatar when you woke up. Um, you are not mourning the death of your dream avatar last night uh, because you saw through the game, um, but your dream avatar didn't survive your waking up. So I think something analogous would happen here. Uh, I think individual agency probably comes to an end, at least to some, some extent. But I don't think you will be bothered about that at all, because the thing that survives is really you. It's not what you thought you were when you were alive, but it is really you. And you will know it's, oh, shit, it's really me. I think that that, that is the... That will be the greatest surprise. I mean, it is the greatest surprise because since we started talking, hundreds of people have died. Death is a constant. It's all around us. It's natural. It's happening all the time. People are going through that revolving door all the time. Um, and I think their biggest surprise is, oh, shit, it's really me. <laughs> uh, yeah, and yet it's not Darren. It's not Bernardo. It's not your dream avatar. Mm. What do you think then of, of experiences of people either in a near-death state or who receive an after-death communication from someone they love who's died, even a pet, um, who, who say they experience themselves as an individual or they see their deceased loved ones as individuals? I think if life is what a dissociative state looks like, um, death is the end of the dissociation. And what, is, what does that mean then? That means that uh, the dissociative boundary is gone. So you have access to what was outside and you have access to that now from a first person perspective. But what was outside also has access to what was inside you. All of your memories, your personality traits, your feelings, your dispositions, your thoughts, your insights, all of that, which was sort of fenced in your own dissociative boundary while you were alive, that's sort of released once the dissociation ends because the fence uh, vanishes and there is no commerce and free traffic between uh, experiential states or mental contents that were before separated. So I think transpersonal consciousness comes to know what you knew comes to feel what you felt. Um, and, and, and that then becomes available uh, in a way that transcends space and time because it's the end of that dissociation. It becomes available in mind at large. Could that be what people are picking up when they have these extraordinary experiences? Could they be picking up contents of consciousness that once were individual, but now are released in the ocean of mentation that surrounds them. I think that's what's going on. So I think there is validity to at least some of what is being reported. I think there's a lot of, a lot of stuff that I don't want to talk about, but some of it is, is, is valid, but it doesn't necessarily imply that the personal agency of the disease has survived intact. I don't even think it's important at all. Uh, it, for, for me, it's not even desirable. I hope Bernardo ends his days when I die. Um, so they may be picking up this information that's now accessible from everywhere and in which before was uh, surrounded by a dissociative boundary. And they then construe that, oh, the disease still exists as a person. Yeah, a person of what age then? <laughs> uh, you know what I mean? It, um, and I think these experiences may be valid in the sense that even during life, um, your, the strength of your dissociative state may vary. Your dissociative boundary may become porous or permeable 
under certain physiological conditions. I think uh, a normal, healthy body and healthy brain function is the image of dissociation. So if your physiology is under stress because you ingest the, uh, you know, a poison or you, you uh, have undergone strenuous physical exertion, like uh, people are su subjected to in, in certain rituals, or um, you hyperventilate it, which constricts blood vessels in the brain and makes you pass out, but you're not unconscious while you're passing out. We know that now. We know that you're hardly ever unconscious, not even when you sleep and not, and not dreaming, not even in general anesthesia, not even when you during syncopa, when you pass out. We know that scientifically now. Um, so I think what happens is that uh, there is enough physiological stress these people are undergoing, either spontaneously and naturally, or because of certain chemicals, or because of certain physical circumstances, like uh, if you're accelerated into, in a centrifuge, uh, you may undergo G-lock because there isn't enough blood in your brain, or because your heart stopped. And, uh, and of course, uh, your physiology will be impacted. And that may be the image of the dissociative boundary being loosened up, because the healthy brain is the image of the perfect dissociative boundary, or as, as perfect as it gets. So when you put stress on your physiology, that's the image of putting stress on the dissociative process itself and reducing the dissociation. And when the dissociation is reduced, I think these people during life may reach out and, and, and have experiences that were in mind at large out there, that they were released before into mind at large, and they pick that up. And then, of course, they, they weave a whole narrative around it, a whole mythology uh, about it, but um, I don't think uh, those mythologies are necessarily implied by the experience, even if the experience is valid. Mm. So it sounds as if what that implies is that effectively everybody's life and experience is being kind of, to use the computer analogy, is being saved on a cloud, a separate file, which <laughs> people can then go and access and experience from there for their, from their self. I think it is a reasonable thing to to think yeah mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. i think it's reasonable to think that mm. so you say that um we've now found out scientifically that even during an general anesthesia and in, in sleepless dreamless sleep we're still conscious i, I wasn't aware of that can you yeah. tell me more about that so there is very recent research uh, into dream experiences um and we know how to identify dreams now with an MEG or an EEG. There are certain patterns of brain activity that are very directly correlated with dreams. So we can identify that from the outside. And what researchers did with a number of subjects, they hooked them up to EEGs and they let them dream. And then they would suddenly wake them up when they were surely not dreaming because they could see that on the EEG readings. And they would ask them, were you unconscious? And uh, invariably, people would say <laughs> they weren't. And then they would report what could be broadly categorized into three classes of experience, non-dream-related sleep experiences. One um, is an experience of no self, uh, described in ways very similar to what advanced meditators describe, when you no longer experience an individual self, you experience pure consciousness, but that is an experience, you can even report on it. Um, other dream or other sleep experiences unrelated to dreams were um, uh, sleep perceptions. So people could perceive what was going on, uh, but in a non-metacognitive way. Um, and dream thinking. You could even, sorry, sleep thinking. Uh, Non-immersive 
sleep thinking and sleep perception. A dream is immersive. You think you are in the dream. Sleep thinking is not immersive. You are having thoughts, but you're not immersed in them. So it's not a dream. And it doesn't register as a dream in the EEG. But when you wake up the subject, they will tell you, oh, I was thinking about that in a completely non-metacognitive way during the dream. Metacognition, metacognition only kicks in after they wake up and remember the dream. So there are at least three classes of sleep experiences that are unrelated to dream. And people seem to be having those experiences all the time. You can attest to this directly in an anecdotal way. Um, if something suddenly wakes you up in the middle of the night, uh, in an unexpected way, um, in, the, in the first second or two, you can train yourself to ask yourself the question, was I experiencing something? And invariably, you realize that you were. Um, but if you're, if you're not trained to do that, what will happen is that you will not ask yourself that question for the first 10 seconds, and then it's gone. Then you, you cannot remember it anymore. So a lot of the states that from the outside seem to relate to unconsciousness, syncope or when you pass out, sleep, uh, drug-induced trances, a lot of these states uh, are known now to entail uh, a rich inner experience, richer than normal. Teenagers world worldwide, unfortunately, have discovered that if you partly strangulate yourself, if you partly choke yourself, you can have a kind of psychedelic trip, a rich transpersonal experience. Um, and they do that. And the problem is sometimes it goes wrong and, and they die. So you would think, uh, you know, a person who has just been uh, strangled uh, uh, or hung uh, or hanged, hanged, um, is unconscious. Well, in fact, they, they, may, they may be tripping out, <laughs> out mm. of this 3D mm. universe. Um, what we can say for sure is that a lot of the times when you come back from those experiences, you no longer remember them. Uh, a lot of the times you wake up in the morning and you don't remember experiencing anything during the night, only later on to remember that you had an intense dream. So lack of consciousness is attributable to a lack of memory of consciousness. Many of these states uh, make it very difficult to lay down uh, memory pathways. So you don't remember what you experienced. And that's as far as you can go. You can say, well, I don't remember experiencing anything while I was undergoing surgery. Uh, but did you really not experience anything last night or when you passed out in a, I mean, pilots, um, and there is a famous uh, paper from 1990, um, studied pilots undergoing G-lock, uh, G-force induced loss of consciousness. And they consistently reported um, uh, rich dreams. I think these are the exact words the researchers uh, 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 used, which then was construed as evidence for materialism uh, because, oh, then you can explain uh, near-death experience. Nonsense. It's just that the mechanisms are similar. G-lock pulls blood out of the brain, but you still had rich mm -hmm. dreams. In an NDE, your heart stopped beating, so blood flows out of mm -hmm. your brain, and you have a transcendent yeah. experience. I, I know that um, the, the pilot training was used widely as an explanation for out-of-body experiences. Um, specifically, you know, veridical out-of-body experiences were challenged because they said, well, we know that G-Lock can make give these people out-of-body experiences, so that's what's that's what's going on when people are even when they're reporting things in other rooms. It's bad know. thinking. <laughs> it's very mm. bad thinking. It's and it's ironically mm. so because you see, you also have to explain how a pilot undergoing G-Lock, in which blood is drained out of the brain and therefore brain metabolism grinds to almost a complete halt, mm. how those pilots could be reporting rich dreams. 
that's yeah. the, ele- the, yeah. the big elephant in the room. That's, How do you make sense of that? that? That's evidence for the complete opposite of materialism. Of obviously. course, of yeah. course. It's just half-brained people who who are not how to say i'm tempted to say intelligent enough to <laughs> to evaluate the situation <laughs> yeah. i'll say that why why is enough uh, no i'll stick to intelligence no, we're not intelligent, intelligent enough to evaluate the evidence who come at these half-baked conclusions and still beat their chests as if they were you know at the, the, the at mm. the apex of reason and the mm. whole thing is very ironic almost pathetic mm. Mm, that's kind of the Dunning-Kruger effect, isn't it? Explain. Yeah, oh, the, the, oh yeah. this, this is a pervasive effect. Uh, yeah. Yes, yes. It's one that's very widely misused as well. I see people planting the Dunning-Kruger on everybody else, and they've clearly not understood what the <laughs> Dunning-Kruger effect actually is. <laughs> it's the same with ad hominem. You know, someone's insulting someone. That's not ad hominem. That's an insult. You yeah, know, yeah. It's yeah, different yeah. between an insult and a logical fallacy, and people just don't seem to understand it, especially online. But. Um, I'm curious in these um, these studies on on dreams in seemingly unconscious sleep. How were they able to rectify that these the experiences when they woke them up and they said yes I was experiencing? How were they able to rectify that these were taking place during the period of unconsciousness as opposed to this this is this these were memories just before a period of unconsciousness or just uh, after? You mean during the period of non-dreaming? Uh, dreams yeah. are identifiable in the EEG. So you don't have to wake people up to know that they are dreaming because uh, it's 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 over obvious uh, in an EEG. Uh, you know what to you know, even you know the frequency bands in which your brain will be operating. That 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 is empirically nailed down mm. to an exquisite uh, precision. So um, did so, they did sorry did they effectively so they had the EEG and this was a dreaming state and after that was flat or you know yes signified so, unconsciousness and then they said i had an experience after the dream yeah so how how were they able to to know then that for example that experience wasn't as the dream state was was ramping down as opposed to being flat okay the whole uh, study design is that they would wake people up in moments when they knew that they were not dreaming and at least a while after the last uh, indication of dreaming states. And then they would wake people up and immediately ask them, what were you experiencing just now, just now, just before you woke up? And they would then report these other three categories of sleep experience. Now, look, you can drill this down to a point where you will conclude that no subjective report is ever reliable. And then you can throw this study away. But if you do that, you have to study, you have to throw away every single study that relies on subjective reports. So in other words, you have to throw away more than half of neuroscience. I don't think we are prepared to do that. So you have to grant validity to what people are telling you. The moment they are waking up, they tell you, well, I was just having this thought just now, just before you woke me up. If you, you, you may say, well, that's not reliable. Yeah, but then you have to throw away everything that is anyway related to subjective reports. Good luck mm. doing that. I mean, I mean, the the only thing I I, I think is if, if people are unconscious, then you know, if, if you wake them up and they say, "I was thinking this thought just just before you woke me up," if they were were truly unconscious, then that time wouldn't register. So it would seem as if it was straight away, uh, even if there was an hour of unconsciousness after. The, the whole point is that they report that they were not unconscious. Because otherwise you could say, well, the moment you woke them up, okay, now tell me what were you experienced just before I woke you up? And they say, well, I have no idea. 
but that's mm. not how people react. And uh, they will consistently tell you, oh, I was heavy. I thought it may, it may evade them very quickly. Within seconds, they may no longer remember. Uh, but these, these people were woken up dozens of times a night. Uh, so the, you are consistently waking them up in moments when you know they're not dreaming. Now, yeah, you can throw this away, but, uh, you know, who guarantees you that you were not born 10 seconds ago with the memories of having lived your whole life? Yeah. You know, yeah. you can bring skepticism to a point where you have to throw away everything. So I think it's unreasonable to throw away this evidence, especially because it's so consistent with everything else we are seeing. We know people are not unconscious when they undergo G-lock. We know people are not unconscious when they are sleeping but not dreaming. We know people are not unconscious, at least in a large number, or 18% of cases of cardiac arrest, as Pim von Lommel's uh, study here in the Netherlands uh, attests. I would suggest that the other 82% simply don't remember. <laughs> mm, <laughs> um, but uh, mm. Pim, Pim doesn't agree with that, so uh, I don't want to misrepresent uh, his study here. Um, we know that uh, when you, you, you think other people passed out because they hyperventilated or because they were strangulated, you would think they are unconscious. Now, we know that that's not the case. So much so that teenagers are dying by accidents trying to induce these transcendent trips, extremely rich, intense experiences by partly strangulating themselves. The whole thing is consistent. We know that psychedelics only reduce brain activity. They don't increase brain activity anywhere every single psychedelic already studied. Yeah, but your experiential richness explodes during a psychedelic trip. It's beyond anything you can even conceive of if you have never had a psychedelic experience. Uh, and But your brain goes to sleep. So we know that there is this consistency between what seem to be states of unconsciousness from the outside, uh, which are also accompanied by a quick uh, 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 lack of memory afterwards, you can't build your memory pathways uh, very, very, very well. So you forget those experiences. But we know that, in fact, most likely you have had very intense experiences. And you can report on them if you're prompted to do so very quickly before you forget them. Hmm. Memory is another question because um, I interviewed Dr. Gerald Burley recently, who's an anesthesiologist. And he, he brought up a, a, a question with the dualistic point of view. And that was that, if there was, say, a separate consciousness, which many people think, then um, surely we know that memories are structured or that there are structures of memory in the brain we can see them forming. So, and if you damage them, um, is that not the case? No, that's not the case. You, you can see the pathways forming. You cannot see where the memories are actually stored. Mm. Although if we cut one of those pathways or several of those pathways, we can yeah. effectively delete the memory. Yeah. So his point was, well, then how can that be if these memories are stored, as you say, maybe in a cloud or, a, or in a in uh, transhuman consciousness? That was his kind of Yeah, but, but he's argument. thinking in dualistic terms and he's thinking in terms of uh, mental memory and, and brain, uh, material brain. And I, I don't like to think in this way. I think the brain is the image of a certain type of process in transpersonal consciousness, a dissociative process. Um, uh, there have been many claims made, even in scientific publications over the last past, uh, few years, that they found where memory is stored. And they have been invariably nonsensical. I have even written about the nonsense that is claimed there. What people have found out consistently is that when you remember an event, the same circuits light up in your brain as when you are actually having the original event. But this is not memory. Memory is 
where is the information stored such that your brain can replay the same patterns of activity uh, in the absence of the original experience? And that question has never been answered. Uh, memory seems to be nowhere. There are studies that are you know, classical studies in which you know, you, they cut off the brains of rats down to you know, 90% being cut away and rats still remember how to do certain things. Uh, planaria, tiny little uh, water animals that have a head and a tail, um, you can cut off the head of the planaria where all the few hundred neurons they, are, they have uh, are located. You can cut off the head of the planarias and they use still and they can form new heads. That's the unique thing about planarias. They mm. can form new heads after you cut off their original one. Uh, and they still remember what the previous head seemed to remember. So uh, these are scientific studies that throw doubt into the idea that in that image we call the brain, all information related to memory is present. Because if the brain is just an image of a dissociative process in consciousness, the, the next question is, is that image complete? In other words, does it have in itself all relevant information about the process it is an image of? And I would say, well, th there is no reason to think that it's complete. Uh, if I look at you right now, I have an image of your inner life, but it's not complete in the sense that there are many things you're thinking and feeling and remembering that are not apparent in the image I have access to. So I don't think the brain is necessarily a complete image. So it's not surprising to me that we cannot pin down in the brain where memory information is actually stored. We know that certain circuits play an important role in accessing that information. But access is one thing. The place of storage is a completely different thing. Yes, if you cut your hypothalamus, you have access. You have no access to memory. But we should not misconstrue. That mean you're taking the memory out. Exactly, exactly. If I, know, if I cut the cable of my hard disk drive, my computer will not remember. But the information is still there. And uh, is that information such that it has a physical correlate in the on the screen of perception that we can access either directly or via instrumentation? I don't know. It may be the case, but it may not be the case because I don't think images of processes are necessarily complete, that they necessarily contain everything that is relevant to know about the, process the processes they are an image of. So I wouldn't be surprised if we simply cannot find where memory is actually stored in the brain because the brain may not be a complete image yeah and therefore we wouldn't have access to the to the complete image either you would not have mm. a measurable correlate for that information uh, would mm. it still be there of course it would still be there if we can remember it means the information is there somewhere and i'm not a dualist so i don't make a distinction between mind and the physical world i think the physical world is a partial image of mental processes uh, but uh, I, I do think it may be an argument against materialism because for materialism the brain is not simply a partial image of the mind it is that which generates the mind so if you can't find the mental information in the brain then you defeat materialism because uh, the cause has to be complete it has to account for everything the image doesn't need to account for everything it's just an image but the cause has to account for everything so even these studies about memory uh, not only the studies about psychedelics and many other areas of neuroscience but even studies about memory are uncomfortable from a materialist perspective because you know finding out what the pathways are is one thing finding out where is the information stored is a completely different thing and neuroscience today is all over the place regarding hypothesis uh, hypothesis for where memory resides it goes from microscopic uh, 
tubules in in neurons to Hamroff, yeah. that's one idea uh, to to inter neuro uh, communication it, it's all over the place in other words we don't have the faintest idea where memory information is although we do know what circuits play an important role in the pathways to accessing that information hmm. what do you think of the um the argument of evolutionary biology in the brain for for consciousness because as as of course as we find a more developed brain in the animal kingdom we have or we seem to have more uh intelligence i suppose or, or more self-awareness so why do you think um why do you think that that is that this transhuman consciousness would project itself in these lower forms I am a naturalist, and I, and I think uh, um, evolution by natural selection is nearly a fact. I think there is oh, doubt yeah. about whether the mutations are really random. I don't think there is any data to decide either way, but that uh, species evolve from other species by the accrual of genetic mutations. I think I think that's pretty much been proven now, isn't it? To, it was, as near I, to damn it, it as you can be. I mean, nothing's ultimately proven in science, uh, but I think we are as. I mean. We don't have any reason not to believe that that has happened. I mean, there, there, there is a wealth of uh, you know extremely compelling evidence from many different areas uh, of evidence as well, from the simulation of genetic algorithms that simulate evolution to compelling experiments with bacterial colonies that obviously evolve uh, to to the fossil record that shows that you know um, certain animals like whales still have the reminiscences of uh, bone structures uh, that uh, were their paws uh, and legs uh, mm -hmm. in the past i mean it's, it's just overwhelming so uh, look i think life is what a dissociative process in transpersonal consciousness looks like but once life is there of course there will be an evolutionary advantage to those types of dissociative processes that live longer and reproduce best so the whole the whole thing applies the whole of the rationale and the, and the theoretical apparatus behind evolutionary behind evolution by natural selection still applies. We have become in the, in the, in the course of the of the eons more complex uh, uh, dissociated alters. Uh, the mentation within the boundaries of our dissociation has become more capable. We have evolved metacognitive abilities. We are capable not only of experiencing things, we are capable of knowing that we experience things and capable of knowing that we know that we experience mm -hmm. things. I mean, this is amazing. And I have very little doubt that uh, this has, we, we have achieved this thanks to the natural pressions of, of, of selection. Uh, alters that developed metacognition could plan, could organize their activities uh, 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 prospectively, uh, could uh, uh, study causal relationships retrospectively. Uh, and, and that has had tremendous uh, survival advantages. So we are alters more capable of surviving and reproducing than those who didn't develop these skills. So I, I don't think transpersonal consciousness is metacognitive. Uh, I think it is instinctive. I think it's a, a very basic form of awareness, very rich, maybe intelligent in a spontaneous way, but I don't think it has the higher level cognitive skills that we have evolved over the course of three and a half billion years of, uh, of selective pressures in this little planetary ecosystem where we, where we live. Moving on to something you mentioned, which is very interesting when I found out, is that um, the experiences that we have 
on hallucinogenic drugs, you know, and the mystical experiences we have actually correlate to less brain activity. And um, a common comparison to that is, do you know the phenomenon of, of terminal lucidity? Or it's called... Yeah. Yeah, it's called um, paradoxical lucidity now, apparently. Yeah. Um, which is, of course, that when, as the brain seems to be dying, um, right towards the end, people suddenly become lucid and, and and talkative after a period, especially in Alzheimer's, of being completely out of it, effectively. Can't remember anything, can't talk. Suddenly they can before death. Um, people um, say that this is evidence that um, consciousness is, is separating from the body in a dualistic point of view. Um, other people, such as Gerald Verley, um, who I interviewed recently about it, said it's due to pH changes or other physiological issues that go on alongside brain damage. Um, what do you think is, is going on there? How can that be possible? If you're a materialist, I mean... <laughs> pH changes, <laughs> what you have to make sense of is how information that is supposed to be lost under a materialist perspective, because, you know, you're left with, what, 25% of the brain, advanced states of dementia and, 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 and other conditions, other physiological conditions, that information is supposed to be gone, to have become entropic, so to say. It is somewhere in the universe, information is never lost, but it can't be recovered because it becomes noises and a much broader context of information in which there are all kinds of, of, of chaotic or um, the chaotic processes happening. So you can't discern that information anymore. And yet, despite all that physical damage, people somehow suddenly have access to that information. So I think for a materialist, this is very hard to make sense of and talk about pH. Come on, it, it's like refusing to see the elephant in the room. You're explaining the periphery of the issue, but you're not explaining the actual issue. Um, I think what might be happening is that you come to a point where your dissociative boundaries now, so, where the physiological stress and, and, and damage is now so profound that it is not only impacting your regular cognitive skills, it's now impacting the ability of the dissociative boundary itself to sustain itself. Uh, and then you can go beyond your dissociative boundary and fish out, fish out contents of consciousness that have leaked out, but they are still around to use a spatial metaphor. And you suddenly access them again because your very dissociation now has come to a point where it's about to collapse completely. And that complete collapse is death. I think death is what the end of the dissociation looks like. So I don't think it's unreasonable then to expect that when you are very close to that complete collapse of the dissociative boundary, that that dissociative boundary starts collapsing more or less slowly. So you see what's behind the wall, uh, so to say things that you could no longer access because of that cognitive damage within your altar, but which now are released just a little bit beyond your altar, that you can fish them out once the dissociative boundary weakens to the point of being about to collapse. It's not, it's not very surprising, mm. uh, I think. So, but so, for a materialist, yeah. it's, it's untenable. So you could, you could almost say that the, the, the damaged brain is kind of giving way to m more access to the fundamental consciousness. Yes, I think the nature of life, because of evolutionary reasons as well, is to uh, try to preserve itself at all costs. Uh, and that's the nature of mind, because life is a dissociative uh, configuration of mind, in my view. 
Um, so it makes sense that because of evolution, that dissociation, that form, that, that way of thinking, that way of experiencing yourself and the world will try to maintain itself at any cost for as long as it possibly can. So uh, all energy, to use a metaphor, will go into preserving that dissociative boundary, whatever the price may be. And the price may be that you lose all of your other cognitive skills, but you still maintain a separation. Um, uh, but at some point that we reach uh, an edge of what can still be sustained, that even your ability to maintain that boundary will go, not only your ability to remember and, and, and interact with the world in a cognitively uh, healthy way, that will all be gone, but it will still try to maintain your dissociation. But at some point, even that will go. And then you are terminally lucid just before you mm. check out. Mm. Yeah, I guess so. Mm. So f for those like me who are mortally afraid of death, the idea of, <laughs> as most people are, the idea that you stop existing forever and forever is a hell of a long time. What Do you think um, our experience of death is anything to be afraid of? Uh, why are you afraid of death? Because it's uh, because you suspect it might be a final end uh, to I mean, you? Yeah, I was always brought up with the idea that death death is it i mean my, my dad's catholic my mum isn't really anything like me um or my dad doesn't really believe but he was brought up catholic with the idea of, of heaven and hell and that there's a god and, and that kind of thing whether he believes it or not i don't know so i was always brought up in an agnostic way um, i was always interested in science at school and i came to the conclusion that yeah you know brain creates it once you're dead you're dead forever and the idea of that you know i, I hate the idea of going under anesthesia I fainted once in a science lesson and that terrified me. You know, any sort of experience of being seemingly unconscious and out of control and being in that state apparently forever with no end for the rest of time, first of all, was unfathomable, unfathomable <laughs> and second of all, was terrifying to me. So you're terrified of the idea of annihilation. Yeah. Total annihilation. Yeah. Because, you know, if you are annihilated for you, there will be no time. You're gone. There will be nobody there to experience the eternity of death. Mm. The but it's, it's, of... it's that thought. I can't get you can't that thought. It. I can't imagine it. Yeah, you can't imagine yeah. it because you know it's not true. Um, deep inside, you know that your consciousness doesn't really end because otherwise, I mean, there was a period in my life in which I was a materialist by by osmosis i never really thought it through but i was at university as a very young i was a teenager when i entered university uh, and i would still be a teenager for three years after i entered university um, so you breathe that environment in which materialism is is assumed as you know it's just what it is nobody gives gives it a thought it's just what you're given and um and death didn't scare me because i i, I understood what death on the materialism was it's the end of all of your fears. It's the end of all of your suffering. It's an extremely comforting idea. You have to put it in historical perspective. For most of our history as a species, our greatest anxiety in life was the experiential state after bodily death. Heaven or hell. Uh, you know, people have been in the grip of that fear for 1700 years maybe 1800 years of christianity and before that that idea also had a grip but in another form not the christian form but throughout our history as a species the fear of the experiences after death were the greatest anxiety in life and then at some point in the 19th century hey that was off the table you didn't need to worry anymore because there would be no fear there would be no suffering there would be no pain 
all of your problems were guaranteed, whether you liked it or not, to come to an end at some point, guaranteed. We take that comfort for granted now, but materialism is extraordinarily comfort comforting. And when I was that teenager, I experienced it as comforting. My, my, my grandfather was still alive, but he was very old. And I thought, well, when I get to his age, I will not be afraid because there is literally, literally nothing to be afraid of. The, the thing that is supposed to be afraid won't be there anymore. Mm -hmm. The space where the fear and the suffering and the pain could exist won't be there anymore. Today, I'm afraid of death. Because today, I'm not going to say I believe, I know that my consciousness doesn't come to an end. Um, but I know its configuration will drastically change. Um, the configuration whose image is my body will not be there because, you know, if the image is not there, I have very good reasons to think that the configuration that, is a, that my body is an image of won't be there either. And I don't know what the experiential state will be after that. I have no direct acquaintance with it. I don't remember it if I ever experienced it before. So, yes, I'm afraid because it's, it's an unknown. For me, the biggest anxiety in the history of humanity is back since I was about 30-something. That anxiety is back. Um, but your anxiety has a different reason. You're afraid of annihilation. You are not really afraid of it because what you're afraid of is that eternity of nothingness as if you were going to experience it. So deep inside, you, you take it for granted that there will be an experiencer experiencing the eternity of nothingness and darkness and a void. That's what you're afraid of um, because you know, <laughs> you know the experiencer is going nowhere. Where is it going to go? It's the one thing that exists. It's the thing where all nature unfolds. Where is it going to go? There's nowhere to go. Um, even though your configuration, your individual configuration almost certainly comes to an end. Um, how do you deal with that? I don't know. I can only tell you that my fear is uh, very different from yours. There is one thing that, um, that you said. You said, I'm, I was, I'm, afraid of I'm afraid of the eternity of nothingness and of the lack of control. That second thing, I think, is very legitimate. You can be very afraid of lack of control because I don't think we are in control of shit. You, we as individual beings don't even really exist. So how could we be in control of anything? Uh, our, our personal consciousness is like a little boat on top of an ocean during a storm. Uh, we may think that we are guiding the direction of that boat with two little paddles, uh, but what is really guiding the direction of that boat is the wind, the currents, the waves, things that we have no control of. Um, and in life, we develop a kind of illusion of control, especially in your early 30s. And when you have a job, you have a relationship, and you have a house with a mortgage, but you feel like, okay, I, I, I've been, I, I, I arrived. I got there. Maybe when you're 40, you say, I got there. And then you start realizing that you're not in control at all, that you can get cancer anytime, that your partner may leave you, that your country may go into civil war, as the U.S. is very close to right now. Uh, you are not in control of anything. A comet may fall, may fall from the sky tomorrow right mm. on top of your house. Look at this COVID situation. Look at the COVID situation. So um, that is a, a fear that I think is valid to reconcile and make peace with. And um, for me, at least, the way to make peace of it is to accept the reality that you are never in control. Not ever. Nobody. Ever. Under any circumstances. We don't even exist as individual agencies, let alone be in control. 
Um, and it's to reconcile, says, um, it's as Shakespeare says, and that we're all actors in a play that's going on. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. Um, so yeah, making peace with that, I think, is a valid uh, objective for for the process of maturation of becoming more mature. If we don't get a grip on that explicitly, um, as Jung said, it will guide our lives uh, beyond our awareness, and we will call it fate. Um, because that fear will manifest itself in unexamined ways in every aspect of your life. In other words, you would turn your life into a desperate attempt to wrestle control, which is a futile attempt. You will never be in control. And many old people, look at the president of the US, their whole lives is a desperate search for power, control, for being in control. And, uh, and that's against nature. And, and for as long as you can sustain the illusion, you may think you are okay but you may not your body may be telling you that you're not okay at all because the deeper layers of your mind know that that's nonsense you can never reach that point um so i think it's valid to, to try to become metacognitively aware of what our greatest um, anxieties and goals are and, and 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 see past them see through them see for the the illusion that they may represent and and instead trying to make peace with the fact that to start, we don't even exist. And that, uh, that thing that doesn't exist isn't even in control. And if you can make peace with that and rest in what, you're, in what you really are, which is what people like Rupert Spira try to help others achieve, um, then you may find peace. I think peace is possible. It is feasible. And by its very nature, if you arrive somehow at that state of peace, which is never complete, but can be deep enough to alleviate your suffering enormously, by construction, that state will also alleviate your death anxiety because the thing you are afraid will die isn't even there. It is not there to die, <laughs> if mm, you know what I mean. Mm, mm. For something to die, it has to exist to begin with and not be just an illusion. Just like your dream avatar, uh, um, it doesn't die when you wake up because it wasn't there to begin with. Um, that, I think, is the only reasonable path the only reasonable ticket out of uh, the anxiety hell yeah it seems the only anxiety you could have at that point would be what will my experience be when i wake up from yeah this illusion yeah that's my anxiety although i'd yeah. say that you know the evidence that we've seen now from many people's experiences and studies done says that it's not a horrific experience it's it's actually a very nice experience <laughs> The evidence seems to suggest that, yeah. yeah. Although the evidence is not uh, 100% in that direction. No, no, no. I think we take to the experience what we have in ourselves. Um, certain things that we bring within us without being aware of it may, sh may, may show themselves at that point because when the dissociative boundaries end, um, we have layers of dissociative boundaries even in life. You are dissociated from certain aspects of yourself that you don't want to recognize. Depth uh, psychologists call it uh, the shadow. Uh, aspects of ourselves that we, we only recognize in others. Usually they are the things that we hate in other people and we blame the others for being like that or for acting like that. Uh, those are actually reflections of what we have in ourselves, but we reject. We don't want to admit to ourselves that we have that in us. Um, and while we are alive, we can maintain these dissociative boundaries. We can repress things, we can push things down. 
um, I think evidence uh, from anecdotal evidence from from NDEs and psychedelic trips suggest that um, when the dissociative boundaries are lowered, we lose our ability to keep those things at bay, and they come and reveal themselves to us. Psychonauts call it, you know, that that's the traditional uh, uh, bad trip. Uh, when your fears and the things you hate about ourselves just present themselves to you and say, hey, look, I'm here. Um, and uh, and um, we know from experience, and in this case, I'm not even going to say anecdotal because I know that from personal experience and I cannot deny my personal experience, the more you resist those uh, in, in, when you are in that vulnerable state of not being able physiologically to sustain the dissociative boundaries, uh, the more you reject them, the stronger they get. Uh, the energy of rejection goes straight into them. It's like you're pumping gasoline into that fire. That's the energy of rejection. That's how it will manifest itself. Uh, on the other hand, if you somehow muster the presence of awareness to say, it is okay, let it be what it may, I accept this too, and you don't resist and you open yourself up to your worst nightmare, it fizzles out. It loses With its that energy. acknowledgement. Yeah. Yeah. That, that acknowledgement of, I'm not going to fight this. Do your worst. I accept it. That surrender to it drains the energy away from it. It, it, it. I don't have a better image than to say it fizzles out. It almost literally, not literally, but almost literally fizzles out. That, that's how you experience it. Um, I, I can put images to it. Uh, these are not my images, but somebody who had this experience in my presence. This person said, uh, it's like I was walking down a corridor with these gargoyles lining the corridor from both sides. Very, very threatening and coming towards me. And I was very afraid. And then at some point, I just thought, oh, let it go. Let it be. Let it be what it will be. What it will be. And they just sort of dissolved out uh, of existence, like a PowerPoint animation. <laughs> if you know what I mean. They're, yes. they're gone. So I think that's the best thing to do, not to try to remain in control, that will backfire. Uh, but uh, in the process of death, if you resist that, like somebody may resist a psychedelic uh, a, a ego dissolution experience during a psychedelic trip, if you resist that, you give energy to that, to that shadow side of yourself. And uh, I think it's very reasonable to expect that some people, maybe many people, can have a horrific death experience, mm. even so already on on which, the yeah. other side which they would yeah. then call hell well you know swedenborg who was a, a scientist a philosopher and a religious man from the 18th century um he described hell because that was the language he had he had a number of of visionary experiences and he described heaven and hell he wrote a book called heaven and hell um an extremely interesting book um and there he describes hell as he says, it's not at all what uh, Christians think it is. People who are in hell are there by choice because that's what they can relate to. Uh, uh, in, in other words, what he's saying is that you bring hell within you. Um, and, uh, and death is a process in which your ability to exert control over aspects of you that are undesirable to you, that ability reduces or maybe extinguishes and you will confront yourself. And if you're bringing that with you, you will confront that. Mm -hmm. And if you resist that confrontation, then, then it will be hell. Um, I think that's the, the most hopeful um, message here is Swedenborg's when he says, he says in the beginning of the book and then he ignores it, he says, heaven and hell are aspects 
of our interior, of our inside. He says that quite literally, and then he proceeds to describe heaven and hell as if they were, you know, uh, physical uh, Places, environments yeah, out there, yeah. because that was the language of his time. Um, but it's very interesting what he says. He, 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 at some point, he says, some people jump headfirst into hell. Mm. That's the imagery mm. he used. Mm. Uh, 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 I think the other important thing is, though, that it's never kind of an e eternal experience of hell. It's often it develops as people, a, as you say, become aware and become acknowledgeable of, of these experiences. They can leave that behind. It's not an experience that that lasts forever, which is what many people today understand the word eternity to mean. But eternity doesn't mean this at all. And originally, it has come to mean it lasts forever if it is eternal. But eternity simply means outside space and time, outside time. The eternal is that which is outside time. And then even the idea of how long does it last makes no sense because it's not in time. But we don't have any, any conceptual or linguistic tool set to, to, to talk about this at all, or even to think about it. We can only think in spatial-temporal terms. But eternity was a symbol. It pointed to something that is outside um, time. And from that perspective, that, exp that experience may be eternal, but it doesn't last forever. You know? 